Well, we're continuing in our series of message from the Gospel according to John that I have entitled, The Message Became Flesh. And um, the topic of the passage we're going to be looking at today in John 2 uh, has to do with worship. And I'm thinking about this, I've been thinking about this all week as I've been working on this. The worship wars are are a thing that have been waging my whole life long. It started before I was old enough to be aware of anything, but I know back in the 60s and 70s, we witnessed the birth of what we would call contemporary Christian music and a whole new uh, way of doing worship music started to emerge. And all my life, that controversy has continued between the hymns-only crowd and the people who are desperately seeking uh, what the latest release is from Hillsong or Bethel or Jesus Culture or perhaps some other megachurch that is launching the latest uh, and greatest uh, worship team. We're great at building worship around ourselves and trying to make sure that it suits our preferences, but is that really the way we should go about worship? Is that what worship should be about? Well, Jesus has a lot to teach us on this subject. I've titled today's message, um, Worship, Two Paradigms. And I have been told that that's a, a fancy word but it expresses exactly what I have in mind. A paradigm is kind of a a whole way of doing and and functioning and looking at things. Uh, And I think that's exactly what Jesus is addressing in this passage. Not just two opinions about something, but two whole ways of going about worship. So uh, that's why I titled it that. Uh, We're in John 2, verses 13 through 25. And let's go ahead and start reading verses 13 through 17. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up into Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he scattered the money changers' money and overturned their tables. And to those selling the pigeons, he said, Take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a house of market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will devour me. There's a whole lot to unpack just in these opening verses. But we find ourselves at Passover, uh, one of the three uh, huge feasts that every Jewish male was required, according to the law of Moses, to come in person to participate in. And uh, this was the one that signaled God calling the people of Israel out of slavery into a whole new life, following after him, the deliverance uh, from slavery in Egypt and this whole new life with God. It was a very significant feast. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Uh, when he got there, uh, we, we enter into a description here of uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. You've probably heard of that. Uh, and there are some interesting things to point out about this whole uh, event. If you're familiar with it, uh, this is one of those events that is found in all four of the Gospels. All four Gospels tell us of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, uh, 
the issue uh, arises when we realize just how different John's version of this event is from the version we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, in John's gospel, this event takes place at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's the next thing he tells us about right after Jesus has uh, performed his first sign at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. In the other three Gospels, this uh, uh, cleansing of the temple happens as he begins his final week in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. It's at the tail end of his public ministry. John is the only one that mentions oxen and sheep. None of the other Gospel writers mention oxen and sheep. Uh, John's the only one that mentions the detail that the money changers were sitting down behind their tables. John is the only one that mentions Jesus making a whip out of rope cords. John is the only one that points out that when Jesus overturned the tables, he sent their money flying, that he scattered the money changers' money. In in John's version is the only one where Jesus doesn't address the people in general, but directs his words specifically to those who are selling pigeons. And... Uh, Another big difference is what Jesus actually says, how he interprets his events. Uh, In the uh, other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus quotes from Isaiah uh, 56 and uh, talks about uh, that God's house is to be a house of prayer. And he accuses them of having turned it into a den of robbers instead. In John's version, he says something different. He says, do not make my father's house a house of market. He doesn't quote the Isaiah passage, says something different. So what do we do with all of this? Well, a lot of uh, people uh, insist that, well, we just have two accounts of the same event, and John is focusing on some details, and the synoptic writers uh, are focusing on some other details, and we have basically the same events, and John is not concerned with the chronology. He's just concerned with uh, placing it thematically where it, it fits his gospel well. Uh, I, that, that might be, uh, but I tend to think that given the, the, the whole, uh, the quantity of differences in the accounts, I'm, I'm tempted to believe, uh, and actually I think I, I lean more towards this, that Jesus did the cleansing twice. If this is true, if I'm right, uh, if Jesus did a cleansing of the temple right at the beginning of his public ministry and did it again right at the end of his public ministry, then Jesus framed, he bookended his ministry with this, cleansing the temple and reframing our whole reference for worship of God. And I think that's what he did. So John tells us about the event that the synoptic writers don't tell us about and the synoptic writers tell us the one event at the end of his ministry. I believe that's what's happening here. Uh, So what do we make of this? What's going on here? He gets to the temple, and there are people selling uh, oxen and sheep and pigeons. And those are all animals considered clean, appropriate for offering as sacrifices, and they're there offering a service. You can imagine that this made it much more convenient to bring a sacrifice to the temple than if you had to buy one, house it in your house somewhere, and then bring it yourself to the temple. Uh, Sometimes animals aren't terribly uh, cooperative when you're trying to lead them somewhere. So this made it much easier for people to come and, and worship God as prescribed in the law 
and to present their offerings. They could just buy it there in the temple precincts and they're good to go. They're ready to do it. And uh, you might wonder then, okay, that makes sense. I can see how that would help make worship easier for people. But what about the money changers? Why do you need to change money? Why don't you just pay what money you have and uh, they can worry about what they want to do with it? Well, uh, there was uh, something uh, going on behind there because the Jews in the first century had set up that every Jewish male once a year had to pay a temple tax. And that temple tax could not be paid with just any coin. It had to be paid with a Tyrian uh, uh, tetradrachma, uh, which was a coin uh, made entire. Uh, and uh, the reason they insisted on that was that that coin had the highest level of guaranteed silver content and they knew that these coins had a very uh, stable monetary value that people uh, understood this is the gold standard so to speak for this coinage and if you had these coins then you knew exactly how much money you had other coins uh, were were not um, uh, guaranteed to have the proper amount of silver so that's the reason the Jews uh, in the temple insisted that if you were going to pay when you came to pay the temple tax you had to pay it with this coin now supposedly the temple tax amounted amounted to half of that coin so oftentimes uh, people would go in together two friends would go in together and purchase the one coin and give that for the both of them. So uh, the reason you have money changers there at the temple is that not everybody can get out to Tyre and pick up these coins. So uh, they provided these for a small fee. You could pay with your money and they would determine and weigh your money and determine its worth and give you the appropriate coin so that you could pay the temple tax. Again, this is something to facilitate worship and to help people do this kind of thing. Of course, we didn't, we didn't come to the question why exactly was there a temple tax I mean they're they're prescribed in the law of Moses a whole series of offerings having to do with sin and there's a whole series of voluntary offerings that one can do and ways in which you can do it but a tax there's nothing nothing in the law of Moses about an annual tax well there is one possible uh, precedent. If we look in Exodus 30 verses 12 and 13, this is when God commands Moses to make a census of the people of Israel. And this is what he tells him. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to Yahweh when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to Yahweh. So there's precedent that there was a moment where Moses had every uh, person pay a half shekel. But this was a one-time event for that one census that was done during the wilderness period. There was nothing in the law that indicated they were to repeat this and much less annually uh, have to pay this. Probably the background for this comes from the Reconstruction period. After the exile in Babylon, the temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple. They spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. When they finally came back and they renewed their covenant with God and began to rebuild the temple, this is the commitment they entered into in Nehemiah 10 verses 32 and 33. 
We, they committed to observe Sabbaths, to not intermarry with uh, non-Jewish people, and to keep the law of Moses, and they also added this. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. So they uh, voluntarily entered into this agreement when they renewed the covenant that they would annually pay uh, a third part of a shekel to support the temple reconstruction project. Of course, they were trying to rebuild a temple that was demolished, and there was a need for uh, more support at that moment. so they committed to do this. Now apparently in Jesus' day they, they never let go of that practice and they actually increased it from a third shekel to a half shekel uh, and made it an annual thing. You have to pay the temple tax. Now what did Jesus think about that? Because it isn't really biblical. It's not really a biblical requirement. I think Jesus did not agree with the temple tax. I think he didn't think that they should be uh, gathering it. If we find in Matthew 17, verses 25 and 26, uh, a moment where Jesus is asked about the temple tax, and he doesn't seem to agree with it. Uh, So this is Jesus' response to the question about the temple tax. Verses 25 and 26 of chapter 17 in Matthew. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. And, of course, Jesus goes on to say, but go to not cause offense. Grab a fish. You're going to find one of these tetradrachmas uh, in his uh, mouth and take it and pay for me and you. Again, one coin was enough to pay for two people. Uh, so, uh, but Jesus seems to indicate that they're doing something God hasn't asked them to do. And here's the problem. There was a lot of poverty in the first century. Most Jews uh, were not well off. They weren't rolling. They weren't rolling in money. They weren't living in luxury. But because of this temple tax, the priestly families in Jerusalem lived in absolute luxury. Their uh, living precincts, when uh, they've been dug up, almost 2,000 years later, they've been found to rival those of senators in Rome. That's the level of wealth they were accumulating from Jews the world over. While most Jews were not living in luxury, but the priests were because of this temple tax. So what does Jesus have to say about all of this? He shows up, he finds the temple precincts, and this would have been in the court of Gentiles, the outmost area of the temple precincts. This is the area where anybody could come in. Uh, It became more and more restrictive the closer you got to the temple proper. Uh, But in this area, he finds all this commerce going on, and Jesus uh, responds by making himself a whip out of cords and driving everybody out of the temple precinct area. Uh, and presumably everybody that is engaging in this commerce. Uh, He drives them out. Uh, And some people say, see, there's justification for violence. Jesus uh, whipped people. Well, I would point out that we're never told that Jesus used the whip on people. I I assume he was using it on the animals uh, to drive them out. Uh, And I don't think uh, there's any record in Scripture of Jesus striking or harming any human being. 
Uh, but he does very forcefully drive all these animals out of the precinct and, and the money, he just flips the table. Those of you who play tabletop games know that that's the ultimate expression of frustration when you flip a table and uh, you know, send all the pieces flying. Well, that's exactly what he did to the money changers. He flipped their tables and there went all the coins. Um, I can imagine they, they were not terribly appreciative of that. And notice... He turns his attention to those who are selling pigeons. Uh, I wonder why John included that detail. You would think he just kind of talks to everyone in general, but specifically he focuses on those who are selling pigeons. And of all the people selling things there, that was probably the most modest of the things going on because the pigeons were there for people who were too poor to afford the lamb or the oxen that the law required. If they did not have enough money to afford the actual sacrifice they were supposed to present, they were allowed instead to present pigeons. They were selling pigeons to the poorest among them. And it's those that Jesus addresses first. And I'm, I'm, I think about all of this. Obviously, Jesus is communicating here that he doesn't want to see this happening in the house of God. He doesn't want to see commerce at the house of God. And why does that bother Jesus? Well, we can think of our approach to God in many different ways. One way to approach God is to say, okay, what do I have to do for God to be happy with me? What does it take for me to get God on my side? What do I have to pay? Do I have to show up when it's Passover, stop everything I'm doing, travel to Jerusalem, pay the temple tax, bring my offerings? All these are the things I must do to keep God happy. Well, then I'll do it because I want God happy with me. I want him to bless me. I want to have good uh, success in my work. I want my wife to be healthy and to have children. And I want all the blessings that come with God's favor. So I will pay what I have to pay to get God happy with me. And the reason this commerce sprung up there at the temple was to make it more convenient To give God what he needed from you. To make it easier. The whole system betrays a paradigm of worship that is transactional. God, I pay you this, and in return I expect from you blessing. I will uh, get the animal, never mind, I'm not going to select it myself, I'm not going to take it from my own flock, I'll just show up at the temple and grab the first one they give me and just be done with it. I won't bother to get the right coin somewhere else, I'll just do it at the temple because it's so much more convenient and so much easier to just pay a little bit to get the right coin there and pay my temple tax and even the whole thing about the temple tax Jesus says you shouldn't be doing. But uh, what the leadership has done is convince people that the way you get God's blessing is you have to pay something. You have to do something, and you will get that in exchange. Now, when this happens, who do people make the most money off of? 
Oftentimes it's the poorest. I suspect those pigeon sellers made a lot of money because they moved a lot more volume, I'm sure, than the people selling oxen. Yeah, you sell one cow or one bull, that's, that's a hefty chunk of change, but how many bulls are you selling a day? While uh, the pigeon sellers probably had nonstop people showing up and grabbing things from them. And isn't that the way people do it when they peddle this version of getting right with God? The priests in Jerusalem had become obscenely wealthy because of that. And they had done it on the backs of the poorest among them. Perhaps that's why Jesus directs his comments to those who are taking advantage of the poor first. Uh, Today we see the same thing. We see televangelists, faith healers on TV, telling people what they have to pay to get God to give them healing or success at work or more money. You send me your dollars and God will give you healing and will give you this and will give you that and it's a completely transactional version of worship where you pay to get something from God. And of course, the people who are doing this get obscenely wealthy And you know who they prey on the most? The poorest, because the wealthy people don't feel like they need God's blessing. They're doing just fine. They don't need God to step in and help them. But those who are scraping to get by, who don't know where their next meal is going to come to sometimes, who are on the edge of oblivion, and they're told, if you'll just do this, God will step in and get you out of it. They're desperate. And they will give what they don't have. So Jesus addresses those selling pigeons. And he says, take these things away from here. Do not make my father's house a house of market. It's interesting that Jesus describes the temple as his father's house. And as I've been uh, studying and looking uh, at this Gospel, I have found that the word father is a hugely significant word in John's gospel. I've tracked this as I've read through the gospel in preparation to preach through John. I tried to mark and look up all of the variants from the Greek root for each of these words, all of the variants of these words, whether it's a noun or a verb or an adjective, all the variants of these words and track how many times each one is used. Let me share some information I found. The word father appears 136 times in John's gospel. And of those, 120 of those times, it's being used to describe God as father. In comparison to that, the word faith or the verb to have faith or to believe only appears 101 times. The word disciple only appears 78 times. The word world, which is prominent in the gospel, only appears 78 times. The word life or living appears 56 times. The word witness or the verb to bear witness appears 47 times. The word love appears 44. The word truth appears 42 times. 
Do you get the sense that John wants us to understand that God means to be father to us? There are a lot of important things he's trying to say to us. But this is uh, the moment where Jesus kind of sets the tone for his ministry by saying, you guys are going about worship all wrong. And you know what we're talking about here with the temple? We're talking about my father's house. This is not a marketplace. This is not the Agora. This is God's house where he receives people who come to visit. That frames it differently, right? If my father were to open his home and say, Come, I want to know you, neighborhood. Would I take advantage of that and set up some kind of a little sale in the front, front lawn of my father's house? I might, sadly, but uh, that, that's not appropriate. You don't want people showing up to your father's house thinking he's trying to make a buck off of you. And Jesus is suggesting that worship is not about transaction. It's about communing with God. And that what God wants from us is for us to draw near to him and to commune with him. There is a place for selling wares and services and making an honest living. There is a place for that, but God's house is not that place. Afterward, the disciples looking back on this remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will devour me. This is a psalm of David, Psalm 69. And it's a prayer for help because David is surrounded by enemies and David explains why he has so many enemies. It's because he has been consumed with passion for God's house and because of that passion that his enemies do not share, they have turned against him and David pleads with God for deliverance from his enemies. It's interesting that Jesus, from this point forward, will awaken the resistance of all the Jewish leadership. They will rightly see what he just did in the temple as a challenge to everything they've built. And Jesus will experience the same thing David did, that his passion for the house of God is going to mark him and set all these other forces in in opposition against him. It's going to be that way from here on out. I have a question from these verses. When we design worship, we establish a transactional system by which we render to God things he wants in exchange for the things from him that we want. Why do you think Jesus insists worship should not follow a marketplace paradigm? Let's keep reading, verses 18 through 20. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you are doing these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, This temple was built over 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? We find in John's Gospel that he often refers to the enemies of Jesus as the Jews. And some people are very troubled by that. Uh, And uh, perhaps some people say that uh, the history of Christianity 
at times has been marked by a very poor treatment of Jewish people because of things like this in the Bible, that they think that the Jews is uh, used in such a negative way is kind of an anti-Semitic comment. I would remind you that John who wrote this was himself a Jew. And uh, he doesn't have any indication that he hated himself. Uh, I, I believe then that he's not, he's not trying to say that Jewish people in general are the worst. What he is trying to show, and, and he will use this term, the Jews, because he's writing, most likely, he's writing his gospel in Ephesus in a very non-Jewish context to a reader, uh, a readership that is most likely not Jewish, and people who are not familiar with all of the different groups that are around in first century Judaism. And uh, if he's writing later in the first century, even after the temple has been destroyed, all of that is gone. Those different political groups, they're gone. Those different things that were going on. So he's not going to try to unravel a history of things that are even no longer existent. Uh, he doesn't try to tease all that out for his readers. He just says the Jews in a collective sense to refer to all of the Jewish leadership. Those who stand in representation of the people uh, that we would des designate as Jewish those who are representing them because they are leaders, all of them, almost all of them, with very few exceptions, and in John we hear about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but uh, with very small exceptions, the Jewish leadership as a whole, regardless of which view or group they were a part of, rejected Jesus. So John uses this term collectively to refer to the leadership, the Jews. Uh, he doesn't specify what particular group within that leadership. But the, the people who are in charge of the temple, most likely chief priests, uh, those kinds of people, they respond to what Jesus has just done and said. And here's what they say. What sign do you show us since you are doing these things? Notice that they don't address what Jesus actually said. You have turned... God the Father's house. God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people and he wanted his house to be a meeting place. He wanted people to draw near to commune with him. That is what it's all about. You have turned that into a marketplace. They didn't say a word about what Jesus was actually talking about. You know why? This is a pattern we can see politicians engaging in today as well. When people are challenging you on an uncomfortable topic, if you can divert attention from the topic at hand to some technicality, something having to do with form, something having to do with legitimacy, then you can ignore the discussion altogether. Haven't we witnessed that over the past year, over and over again? People escaping, discussing topics because they throw up a technicality. That's what they're trying to do. They're not even going to talk with Jesus about the fact that they are doing worship wrong until Jesus legitimizes his right to raise the issue. They demand some kind of a sign. Now, it's interesting 
the great prophets of the Old Testament, some of them, God did miraculous signs through them, but many of these prophets, there's no indication that they ever uh, performed any kind of a sign. It was the message itself that God's Holy Spirit convicted people. This is word of God. And it ended up becoming canon over the centuries. That was how the truthfulness of a prophet was was discovered. And in the law, it even talks about uh, if a prophet says something that contradicts what God has already told you in the law, then he's a false prophet. Or if a prophet says, God said this, and what he said doesn't happen the way he said it, then he was lying. Those were two ways to know about a false prophet, but there's nothing to indicate that you have to have some kind of a validating sign before you have a right to speak. But they demand it. What sign do you show us since you're trying to do all this? Now, as often happened in Jesus' ministry, he performed amazing, incredible signs. But you know what? He never performed signs as a response to a demand. Those of you in the faith movement, pay attention to that. Jesus does not respond to demands. He responds to requests and sometimes even responds to people who don't have enough faith to even make a request, like the man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. Sometimes Jesus just steps in and does something amazing even when you haven't even asked. But he's not a monkey that dances on cue. And he didn't come here just to impress people and to put on a show. He came here to redeem creation from sin. And he knew exactly what he had to do. And you know what? Jesus doesn't waste time trying to prove himself to people who have no interest in him. He came to save those who want to be saved. And if all you have for Jesus are challenges then don't expect him to do anything. He didn't come to entertain you. He came to save you. If you don't want a savior, Jesus will move on to somebody who does. Jesus did not perform any sign that day. He did not validate his right to do this with some kind of a sign. But he did promise that he would give them a sign. Eventually. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This temple. That's the whole topic we're discussing, right? Who gets the right to tell us how we should go about worshiping in God's house? How should it work? Should it be transactional or should it be communal? They thought they had the right to dictate it. Jesus was saying, no, you're wrong. I am the one. It is my father we're talking about here. I will tell you what needs to be happening in his house. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews responded to this. This temple was built over 46 years. You're going to raise it up in three days? And that is where the conversation ends. John doesn't tell us anything else. I suspect that that's as far as they took it. They responded in utter dismissal and disbelief. You're talking nonsense. 
We have been working for 46 years building this thing. That renovation, Herod's temple, where they dismantled and basically rebuilt the temple in its most glorious expression ever, using the best Roman architecture available, which was the best architecture anybody had seen. There are things the Romans built that are still standing today, 2,000 years later. They knew how to build. This was the most glorious incarnation of the temple. It was truly the third incarnation, even though they technically called it a renovation of the second temple. But basically, they built it around the old one and dismantled the other one inside. We have Solomon's temple. We have the one they built when they came back from the exile. And we, now we have this glorious one they've been working on for 46 years. By the way, that means that this happened in A.D. 27. 46 years they've been working on it. You know they will not consider the project finished until A.D. 63, which means they will continue working on this remodeling project for 36 more years. You know how long it'll stand finished? Seven years. In A.D. 70, it will be destroyed completely, raised to the ground. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They dismiss it. We have worked so hard on this. We have invested so much. We have built a glorious place of worship. The Jews have never seen anything like this. You talk about destroying it? Or you suggest we're going to destroy it? And you say you can build it quicker? Oh, that's nonsense. We can ignore this guy because he's clearly lost his marbles. Let's just go right back to doing things the way we've always been doing them. What's Jesus saying here? Uh, This is, by the way, what they have accomplished. This is the whole system of worship the way they have built it. They have spent 46 years. They'll spend another 36 finishing it up. And it's glorious white marble, Roman columns. It's spectacular. The gold plating is so amazing. It's blinding when the sun is shining and you approach the temple. It's it's like a shining beacon. The Jews are so proud of what they have built. And Jesus is saying, "You've, you've done it all wrong. This isn't what the Father wanted of you. I have a question from these verses. The Jews in Jesus' day were extremely proud of the magnificent temple they had built. Why do you think Jesus talked about it being destroyed? And what might we learn from his warning to first century Jews? Let's keep reading verses 21 and 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised out from the dead, his disciples remembered that he was saying this, and they believed in the scripture and in the word that Jesus had spoken. So when Jesus says, in three days I'll rebuild it. Now obviously people reading this, probably in 80 or 90 AD, uh, reading this gospel, they know the temple is long gone. It's been gone for at least a decade, maybe two. There's no temple. It's bare rock. It's been a whole lot longer than three days. Jesus never rebuilt the temple. What was he talking about? 
So yes, as Jesus said, they did succeed in destroying the temple. That temple would never have been destroyed if the religious leaders in Jerusalem had not incited out out and out revolt against Rome. If they had not tried to force God's hand, thinking that they had accumulated enough goodwill from God that they could force the issue by revolting against Rome and God would step in and send his Messiah to get them out of trouble. They succeeded in Rome raising the temple to the ground. And even in the final days when they were under siege, they were bickering back and forth and they did not surrender and spare the city. They did things in such a way that Rome finally came in and just destroyed the temple completely. They did succeed in destroying the temple, but Jesus didn't rebuild it in three days. Well, John explains that he was talking about his body. Now that is something that they, these people, this Jewish leadership, did not only succeed in getting the Herod's temple destroyed, they succeeded in destroying Jesus' body. They succeeded in having him flogged and beaten and cruelly treated and finally uh, displayed naked on a Roman cross until he was dead. They ground him into the dust. They utterly annihilated him. They destroyed him. And yet on the third day, he rose. John says that's what Jesus was talking about. And you might wonder, well, in what sense is Jesus' body God's temple? Well, there are a couple of ways, I think. And John will unpack this throughout the rest of his gospel. One, and one way in which Jesus' body, his physical body, was a temple of God is the fact of the incarnation. God became flesh and walked among us. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 11, he says he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us in the incarnation. It was like the tabernacle, like uh, the house of God on earth. In a very real sense, Jesus was the house of God among us. Jesus was God dwelling among us in a way never seen before. Every cell of his body was without sin and perfectly uh, infused with God. He was God. And uh, in that sense, he was the house of God, the walking, talking house of God on earth. There's another sense in which I think we should understand this. Jesus is talking about replacing the temple they've built with the temple he's building. It's no mistake that throughout the New Testament there are two predominant metaphors used to describe the church. One of them is that the church is the temple of God, the house of God, built by God with the cornerstone being Jesus Christ himself and all of us being living stones that God has fashioned together into the house he dwells in. The temple of God. The other metaphor is body We are the body of Christ. Christ is the head and he has drawn to himself all of these members into his body on earth. 
So when Jesus says, you can destroy this temple, I'll build it in three days, he's saying, you guys are going to be doing away with this thing, but I am establishing the true temple of God. And my body, my death and resurrection is going to be the key to it all because it will signal and accomplish the defeat of sin and death and enable the giving of the gift of the Holy Spirit which will become God the Father dwelling in us on earth. He did build it in three days. And that house of God is standing today. That hill in Jerusalem is still uh, temple-less. There's a mosque on there. There's no Jewish temple there. I don't think it's going to be rebuilt. But there's, there's a difference between worship when we build it and worship when God builds it. And Jesus is pointing to that in these passages have a question from these verses. Jesus removed the temple built by men and replaced it with one he built through his own incarnation, death, and resurrection, the church. How is the church a better house of God than any building we could ever construct? And let's finish reading verses 23 through 25. Now as he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus himself did not entrust himself to them, because he knew them all, and because he had no need that someone should bear witness regarding the human being, for he knew what was in the human being. John concludes this event by commenting that there were a lot of people during that Passover that believed in Jesus. And you would think, oh, great, that's why you wrote this gospel according to you. And at the end of the gospel, John says, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him you might have life. So if if people are believing in Jesus, isn't that exactly what he wanted? You would think that this is kind of a good ending. Yeah, the leadership rejected Jesus, but there were still a lot of people that believed in him. If that were all we had, verse 23, that would be what we think John is trying to tell us here. A lot of people believed in him, not the leaders, but a lot of other people believed in him. But notice verse 24 that kind of casts a, a shadow on the whole thing. And there's even a play in words here. It's the same verb. They believed in him. It's the same verb. But Jesus himself did not believe himself to them. And thinking of belief or faith as the idea of trust, they trusted in him, but he did not trust himself to them. There's a deliberate play on words there. There's kind of a, a, not a mutuality there. There's not a reciprocity. They believed in Jesus. They trusted in Jesus. Jesus did not respond to them in kind. And John, I think, is, is aware. And we see it throughout his gospel. That faith is a difficult thing. That faith in Christ is more than just one moment where we say we believe something. It's more than just signing off on a creed. If worship is really about communing with God, about drawing near to Him and enjoying Him, not peddling with Him for things we want, 
but actually drawing near to Him as the object of our worship. If that's what it's really about, then uh, it isn't just about saying, I believe this and that and the other. It's about me loving God. It's about me drawing near to God. It's about me opening my heart up to Him. And this is a relationship that happens over this whole lifetime and will continue happening for those who belong to Christ for eternity. This drawing near to God. John knows this is, uh, there are a lot of moments in life where we, are, we encounter something spectacular from Christ and the immediate response is, that's awesome. I believe in that. I'm all for that. I'm all for Jesus. And we have churches packed with people who say nice things about Jesus. But are they really pursuing him in the manner in which he wants us to pursue him? We find in John that a lot of people say they believe in Jesus and then immediately turn around and are his enemies. There's a passage even in chapter 8 where people who he says believed in Jesus after entering into a conversation with Jesus want to stone him. So we can throw around the word belief or faith. But uh, the truth is God, Jesus, knows what's really going on. He knows if you're just drawing near because you want something from him, that's the kind of worship he's not interested in. You know the greatest thing we can discover from Jesus, the greatest gift he came to give us was himself. And if we don't get that about the Christian faith, we don't get the Christian faith at all. A, a, a treasure even greater than forgiveness, even greater than eternal life, even greater than all of that is that God gave himself to us in Christ. That's the true treasure. And we, we throw around the word faith and belief. But John reminds us, don't be glib about it and really ponder what exactly is Jesus calling you into. Because you know what? You may say you believe in him, but from his end, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's in the human being. He doesn't need somebody to explain it to him. He doesn't need you to explain to him what's going on. He knows better than you know what's in your heart. So if we're going to draw near to God, let's do it the way Jesus said. Not as a transaction. That's the way pagans do worship. But as an actual drawing near to God. I have a question from these final verses. John warns us that just because a person claims to believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean Jesus validates the claim. How can we know that the faith we claim to have is genuine? And there we have it. Jesus came to replace our way of worship with God's. 
Now, when we build worship, we lay out structures and we lay out patterns and we instruct people in what they need to do to get God's blessing. You have to uh, deny yourself of certain things during Lent. You have to get some ashes on your forehead a certain day. You have to do these penances to earn credit from God. You have to memorize these prayers and repeat them over and over until you don't even know what you're saying because that's going to earn you some kind of credit with God. Or there are those who say uh, you have to uh, invest financially in ministries and uh, you have to make the appropriate sowing of faith so that God will respond with blessing. Jesus, when he encountered that, he threw it on the ground and said, get that out of here. That is not what God the Father wants. He wants you to draw near to him and to seek after him. The things he gives you are the things he gives you. But if that's the object you're after, then that's not what God is after. That's not what God is looking for. God does not invite us to the market to the negotiating table, to an exchange of goods and services. He does not invite us to that. He invites us to dinner. He says, come over. I've set out the finest I have. I have set out the best I have to share with you. Come to me. Isn't Jesus' pattern for worship better? Let me close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you that you love us. I still don't get it. I don't know why. You love us so much. And thank you that you have opened yourself up. You have given us yourself. Lord, as we draw near, help us to never be distracted to anything other uh, than you. Help us to draw near to you, to commune with you, and to enjoy you. And Lord, forgive us for every time we cheapen worship and make it about something about me that I want. If that thing that I want is anything other than you. Lord, draw us to yourself and give us hearts that prize you above anything else in life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.